Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Matthew Owen is the founder of Cool Earth. Cool Earth is a charity that believes the most effective way to fight climate change is to protect the best carbon stored technology that already exists, the rainforest. And the best way to protect the rainforest? It's not carbon credits or tree planting apps. It's supporting indigenous people who have been guardians of the rainforest for thousands of years. Cool Earth gives cash direct to the rainforest communities, enabling them to fund local projects and tackle the root causes of deforestation. In this episode, I chat to Matthew about his career journey from finance to charity, the current state of climate change, the most impactful changes we can make, why tree planting apps aren't the solution, and his journey building Cool Earth. Hey Matthew, very excited to have you on the show today and chat about Cool Earth. How, how are you doing? I'm good. Lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Craig. Of course. So, you know, someone said to me, can you guess the background of someone that spent the last 17 years running a, a charity in the climate space? I probably wouldn't have guessed your background. So initially just wanted to understand a bit about kind of like what initially attracted you to your first career, which was kind of like banking and finance. And then more importantly, like the key moments that led you to creating a charity um, and, and like Cool Earth. No, it's, it's, um, it's I suppose, a fairly unusual background, although I will say that um, a lot of the skills of running a charity, going into a meetings and encouraging people to give you money, are, are not dissimilar to people working in finance. Right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I left college. I um, started doing a PhD, which um, I soon fell out of love with, um, and then um, started working for um, various political figures and the like, and I kind of fell into finance, um, as you do, or as you used to, um, because I was asked if I'd be interested in um, basically doing a bit of work for a, a company called Robert Fleming, which has long been swallowed up by numerous other investment banks. But uh, I loved doing it because, one, it was really creative, I found. It was incredibly um, uh, challenging in terms of you know having to be, be responsive to a lot of different ideas very quickly. I, I worked in equity research. Um, and it was very lucrative, and I'm afraid that's the thing that catches you. So they, they pay you more and more, and they promise you um, shares in three years' time and then five years' time. So um, I early on recognised that um, I would either have to do it for the rest of my life because I would really you know, drink the Kool-Aid, or at some point I'd have to get out quickly. So I think just as I was approaching the end of my 30s, I realised that it would be a good idea to do something different. So I handed in my notice. I was working for Morgan Stanley in those days. And they um, very kindly um, made me work my contract, which I think was about a year or something. So best of all, I had to work my contract, but I wasn't allowed to work for them or any of their competitors. So I was literally on gardening leave. I was unable to do anything in finance, anything to do with um, the space that I'd been uh, familiar with for so long. Um, and at that point, I was asked by... Um, someone who I worked with very early on in my career, um, the, the Labour MP, Frank Field. Um, and he asked me if I would uh, look at a, an issue that he and a gentleman called Johan Elish had been um, wrestling with. Namely, uh, if you look at climate change, between 10 and 20% of all um, emissions that contribute to the, the, the climate crisis come from basically land use change, which is principally the destruction of forest and principally the destruction of uh, tropical forest. 
And how do we save the rainforest was, was the thing that they were looking at because it had been a slogan for the environmental movement for, I don't know, 40, 50 years, but we hadn't really done a very good job of it. So they asked if I'd be interested in uh, basically looking at this tricky problem while I have my year off and um, you know coming up with some suggestions. Cool. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really interesting how things just pan out and you have sometimes the opportunities and, and these things that kind of come your way and then it kind of puts you on a completely different steer in terms of like your your future. Um, I'm going to put a kind of a pin in caller just for a second and we're going to come back to that very shortly. Um, and first, just want to talk to you a bit more about kind of climate change and, and the rainforest um, specifically. So um, big, broad question <laughs> to begin with, but how would you describe like the current state of climate change? Like where are we at in terms of the planet and humanity right now? We are careering towards um, something greater than two degree heating of the planet in the next um, 10 to 15 years, which, um, you know, doesn't sound much, but as, as we all know, um, two degrees on average means 10 to 15 degrees in the poles, um, 10 degrees in many um areas close to the equator that basically means that huge areas of uh, the world just become um, uninhabitable for large parts of the um, the summer. So that's kind of where we are. It's, it's um, We're going to hell in a handcart, quite simply. And um, whilst I would argue that in the last five years, there have been huge numbers of reasons to be optimistic, particularly the um, gradual weaning off from uh, fossil fuels and the increased use of renewables and the genuine consciousness, particularly of you know, younger people, that uh, this is not um, an existential crisis to talk about in 10 or 20 years' time. It's something we need to address now. Uh, we are still um, going in the wrong direction very quickly, and uh, we still haven't made the genuine radical changes that have to take place for us to avoid a level of heating that will condemn, you know, millions billions of people to um you know just awful lives and forced migration uh, do you think there's still hope like is there still time or do you think we're past that point now and it's it's like damage limitation um there is hope um and i would argue that uh even if we're focusing on damage limitation that's still gonna save a lot of lives and a, a, a great deal of um uh, pain uh, in the future. Quite how we go about um, ensuring that there is hope is, is a challenge, and I would say that there are basically three things that that we have to you know address in the in the here and now. Um, without getting too technical, particularly to a level that I don't entirely myself understand, um, the the most potent and common greenhouse gas, as it were, is methane. Um, and it's potent because it heats many times more than carbon dioxide, um, but it also doesn't actually hang around quite as long in the atmosphere. So if we want to you know, get a very quick fix to reducing some of the emissions that we're putting in and the consequence of those emissions into the atmosphere, addressing methane in the here and now is definitely something we have to do. Um, <clears throat> the second thing we have to do is relating to coal, and we're all familiar with that uh, coal is pretty much the worst of the fossil fuels that we burn. Um, very often the lower quality uh, strains of coal make things <laughs> even worse than sort of, you know, the, the better anthracite and the like. But finding a way to actually, you know, dial down instantly the number of coal-powered um, uh, energy uh, production that we have in the world is something that is without a doubt um, a priority. And, you know, the fact that 
there is still financing for new coal stations is, is a huge issue that needs to be addressed. And then the third thing, um, and this is very much recognizing that we have to do things quickly that will have an impact quickly, is addressing the destruction of tropical forests. Because um, unlike just about everything else that we have to um, reduce in terms of emissions, the destruction of tropical forests doesn't have a huge invested capital base behind it. It doesn't have you know, a depreciation cycle of 20 or 30 years that a vehicle or a power station or a transportation system probably already has baked in. Um, and in many cases, the destruction of forests is really just a market failure. There's no value placed on the forest and therefore clearing it very quickly for pretty low-grade farmland makes a lot of sense. Um, addressing that market failure to put a value on forests that's being kept standing is, is absolutely critical and something that we believe um, is one of the, as I say, the top three things that need to be addressed. And that's why, you know, um, I, I, I work in this space and why Cooler uh, works so hard with so many other organisations to really say, how do we put um, in place a halt to rainforest destruction immediately? Not in 10 years' time, not in 20 years' time, not dialing it down, but how do we actually you know, address it this year? 100%. And um, I guess to give some... Uh, idea of like the damage that's been done i'm not sure what kind of like timeline if you have some stats or numbers but like over the last i don't know if it's 20 50 years and we look at the tropical rainforest around around the planet can you give an idea of like the rate of destruction or like how much damage has been done um it's it's tricky because uh to give a really um single number because uh rainforest over the you know geological time expanded and contracted and the like and um if we though we take a step back and say fifty years, we've probably lost about thirty percent. Um, and some has been degraded, some has been destroyed completely. Uh, but it, it's that sort of quantum. It's just a scary thought. And yeah, like you said, that there are lots of companies trying to work on this problem. And and again, like looking kind of backwards for a moment, if we look at the last 20, 30 years, like I remember being a you know at school as a boy, watching the videos about this. So it's been a problem that we've all been aware of as humanity for, for decades. Um, can you share like some of the approaches that have been taken over the last 20, 30 years uh, around the world and, and like how some of them have been like quite varied in their success in terms of those approaches? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you're absolutely right. Saving, saving the rainforest has you know, certainly been a, a very live issue for the environmental movement for 30 years. I'd probably say even longer than that, you know, uh, well before your time even, Craig, sort of 50, 60 years. Um, and obviously, the reasons for saving the rainforest have varied. I mean, today we talk very much about the contribution it makes to the climate crisis, but um, originally it was um, probably more about habitat. It was um, in many cases about ensuring that extraordinarily diverse and rich ecosystems were, were kept intact, which meant that most uh, rainforest protection, let's say from the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, was very much associated with the large conservation charities who... Um, did fantastic campaigns along with um, uh, environmental activist groups such as Green Priests and Friends of the Earth and the like. Um, and they did a very good um, job of raising a lot of funds to often protect specific species, uh, create uh, parks, create um, reserves that would, it was in an ideal world, ensure that um, rainforest destruction was, if not halted, then certain particularly valuable parts of it were, were protected and that was uh a very 
um, prevalent and, you know, you could argue very successful approach for certain parts of, of the rainforest. Um, the downside to that is, is um, probably as you can <laughs> imagine, a, a few things. Um, if you're just protecting patches, then that kind of often gives uh, free scope to see huge numbers of other um, areas of forest um, destroyed quickly. Often, if you're focusing on the animals, then uh, you might be uh, ignoring, and this is all very often the case, the people who live there. And I would argue that one of the big narratives that underpinned a great deal of rainforest conservation in the past has been, we must protect this pristine Eden. The rainforest is um, almost a sort of, you know, uh, pre-man environment that is uh, so distinct and so untouched. You know, we are almost committing a crime against nature to touch it, which is a lovely sentiment, but completely wrong. I mean, rainforests have been populated and were the areas that were populated earliest um, by man and, you know, um, Homo sapiens uh, of anywhere in the world. They continue to be very heavily populated. Um, They continue to be landscapes that have been altered by human activity. And whilst, you know, they might not be up there with the Sussex Downs in terms of what we've done to change them. If you go through the Amazon, if you go through the Congo rainforest, you go through the um, uh, South, uh, Southeast Asian rainforest, you will see, you know, signs of changes that go back many tens of thousands of years, whether it be charcoal being very underground or indeed, you know, large cities being created um, in these regions. So we do have an issue that the conservation narrative, as I said, did tend to write people out. And that was problematic because whilst it might have presented uh, a very compelling product to you know funders and do- donors namely this wonderful um, untouched uh, piece of nature it really ignored the fact that the people who live there are critically important in terms of keeping that forest standing and in actual fact if you make a long list of all the people who have tried to protect rainforest from Conservation International, to WWF, to the Brazilian government, to the Belgians in the Congo, to whoever, everyone who's kind of, you know, t- t- taken the stab at it. The only group of people that have anything that, you know, approximates to a track record of success are the indigenous groups that have lived in the rainforest for many generations. And this is something that just wasn't sort of recognised in those early attempts to um, protect rainforests. The second um if, if I can put it like that, the second sort of um, era of rainforest protection focused far more on industrial uses of the forest products that came out. And we saw some really good work, again, led by the likes of Greenpeace to limit the importation of roundwood timber and you know, teaks and hardwoods. And again, that did great work, but often that was a, um, a governance approach that only worked as well as the quality of governance in the supply chain and indeed the country where we're coming from. So whilst that's been you know, tremendously effective in some cases, it was quite easy to flout and I can, I can bore you to death with people basically pulling up mahogany trees to replant them other places in order to get the right you know, form so they could then chop that down and export it allegedly illegally. So again, that was very problematic in terms of um, how uh, effective that was. Although, you know, the European Union now introducing things, I think, to come into force next year, which really do um, put the thumb screws on everyone whose supply chain will be far more effective. And then what we've seen in the last, you know, um, I would say 10 to 15 years, and I, I very much hope that Cool Earth is associated with this, is a, a call for conservation that puts, as I say, the people who do live in the forest rather than 
the biodiversity rather than the industrial product um, at the centre of the reasoning about why we need to protect it. Because, uh, as I said, they have the track record. And if they're not uh, not simply involved, but actually leading this process, then it's not sustainable. And quite simply, it won't work. Makes makes a lot of sense. And and the one thing I wasn't sure if you touched on or not, but I was keen to get your thoughts on is... Um, especially it feels like in the last five years, both as a consumer and a business owner is a lot of these kind of like tree plant gaps, which focus heavily on reforestation. Do you think there's a place and those are helping solve some of the problem or are they more of like a, a gimmick and it's not really addressing the core issues? Tree planting is, is a wonderful thing. It's great fun. And, you know, if, if things go well in 20 years time, you're going to have a big tree wherever you put that small tree in. Um, the problem emerges when, you um, associate that tree planting with consequences that it's unable to achieve. So, for example, putting in a tree uh, now, let's say in a piece of deforested um, uh, land in um, Brazil, and assuming that that tree will grow over the next you know, 70 years into this fantastic uh, specimen, uh, and somehow, because that will grow by breathing in carbon and exhaling oxygen and doing all the wonderful services to, to the world that, that trees do, that you can then say, okay, that tree will weigh 20 tons of carbon. Therefore, I can emit 20 tons of carbon, but call it quits because I've done this wonderful tree planting activity. That's a nonsense. That has no logic <laughs> whatsoever, which, which um, I'll, I'll try and explain. The main reason... See, there are three reasons why that doesn't make any sense. First of all, you're putting in a tree and you're hoping it will grow to 70 years. Uh, I mean, maybe it will, but as we've seen with the wildfires throughout um, both the tropics and, and um, the likes of um, Australia and Australia, uh, Australia to California, um, you really can't guarantee that that tree will last that amount of time. Also, planting in a tropical soil, tropical soils aren't often very good. Um, the way I sometimes try and explain this is uh, many rainforests grow on a compost heap of their own making. They're shedding leaves and litter, and that turns into a soil literally within weeks. You know, none of this. Uh, I live in Cornwall, and our compost heaps take a good sort of two years to turn into something that approximates a soil. It, it happens in a matter of weeks, and they therefore grow on that. But if the forest goes, this compost heap disappears very quickly and left with very you know low grade soils very quickly. So. Growing a, a tree on those soils, and again, assuming it's going to reach its maturity, is, is very unlikely. And then the other thing is, uh, if you look at the other side of the equation, and this you know, uh, use of a fossil fuel that you wish to, let's say, offset in some way by planting a tree, a fossil fuel um, has sat underground for you know, millions of years. I mean, most fossil fuels came from the original um, rainforests that, you know, <laughs> were, were more like um, tree ferns and they sort of got crushed down and because no microbes existed in those days to actually eat the things, they just turned into this extraordinary um, heap of carbon um, eventually underground and then got squeezed into coal and oil and, and produced natural gases and the like. Um, when you burn that, you're, take, you're, you're creating a emission that is basically a, a geological act, as it were. You're, you're, you're taking a fossil fuel and turning it into atmospheric CO2 that then goes into uh, the atmosphere. That will sit there. Most of it will, um, well, about 40% of it will sit there for around you know, uh, five years. About 20% of it will sit there for about another 40 years. The rest of it will sit there for over a 1,000 years. 
genuinely millennia we're talking. And therefore, to say that you can plant some trees that you're really hoping, but possibly won't get to 70 years, and that will somehow counteract um, these uh, acts that will create emissions that will carry on for millennia is, is an absurdity. One way of putting it is if you look at sort of the average length that a CO2 will hang around in the atmosphere from a ton of you know, oil, it's about 740 to 50 years. That's the, the best science that's out there. If you go back in history, then you're looking at um, basically the Magna Carta being signed <laughs> that, that far back in history. So you're almost assuming that trees planted in the Magna Carta were looked after, and when they died, they were replanted and replanted and replanted to guarantee that that carbon still stayed tied up in um, the biomass uh, for that amount of time. It's an absurdity. And what this is doing, therefore, by using tree planting to justify emitting fossil fuels is just putting an extraordinary burden on our children or our grandchildren uh, to, you know, basically live with the consequences of um, our consumer decisions in terms of fossil fuel use. Really interesting. And I'm, I'm glad I asked because I'm, you see these things and you see how they're marketed and there's always like, I'm, I'm quite a uh, pessimistic consumer. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, it always sounds like it was too good to be true and, and slightly misleading. And, and I, but that's the first explanation I've ever had from someone that, that actually explains exactly why and, and just how it doesn't quite all add up. Um, final question before we move on to talk about cool earth. Um, so what are the main levers that we have? Like, obviously, we want to protect what we have. We want to nurture the, the tropical rainforests. What are the biggest things that can be done? Is it like government legislation? Is it consumer behavior? Is it businesses and looking more responsibly into their supply chains? Like, what are the two, three top things that could be done that will have the biggest impact on protecting the rainforest? Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a big question. Um, and... It probably deserves a fuller answer than I'm going to give, but I'll, I'll give you the top three things, which are first and foremost, um, buying from companies who are genuinely committed and genuinely delivering on commitments not to have rainforest products in their supply chain. Um, and there are lots of ways in which you can do this. Um, rainforest Alliance are, are, are excellent, but equally, uh, if you look at most of the large consumer goods manufacturers that you'll be buying huge number of things from uh they will have very clear statements and and you know taking them to task being an active consumer being a, a bit of a pain to write in and sort of you know ask if you're not sure about something is is something that we all need need to do um and i would maybe sort of add to that you know being particularly conscientious about palm so palm oil is an extraordinary product i mean it, it has more in common chemically to pig fat than it does to a vegetable oil I and mean, solid at um, room temperature, it you know has extraordinary properties. That means it's used. People always say, "I don't know if this is all the case." Fifty percent of supermarket products will contain some sort of palm. Figuring out how you can buy products that don't have palm, or if you do, you know, um, do have uh, a level of responsible uh, production that you actually trust is, is a really important thing. So I, I would certainly put um, that as a, as a big thing that we can all do as consumers. Um, the second thing is I, I would be um supportive very much of uh groups that are you know doing wonderful things to protect rainforest uh in terms of um habitats and well-established um groups such as I know, conservation international forum international and they, they do great work I, I won't deny it um that 
uh, a great deal of the rainforest that has been kept in place for the last 40 years is because of these groups putting a great deal of investment and time to often protecting keystone species, but as a result, protecting forests. So I, I certainly um, w- would encourage supporting those groups. But the other thing, and this is um, probably what we're going to talk about um, today, is um, figuring out ways in which you can actually support the people who live there. Because just as um, we made decisions, or rather our ancestors made decisions, you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago, to change the landscape of Britain or the US or Germany, France, Italy, wherever, in order to supercharge our industrial revolution and our economic development. Uh, we're, in many cases, asking people who live in rainforests not to do that in order to provide a huge benefit to the globe in keeping those rainforests standing. So first and foremost, uh, of all those things, we need to figure out how we support those groups, those people who in many cases want to keep the rainforest standing, who have a fantastic, as I say, track record of doing just that. But now, for a whole bunch of reasons, economic and social principally, are finding um, the task of uh, keeping those forests intact more and more challenging. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io, where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you will be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. And that's probably a good point. And I've, I've asked you enough questions <laughs> about um, the climate and rainforest um, to lead up to chatting about Cool Earth and the good work that you're doing. I, I think you've hinted at it a couple of times, but it'd be great to hear, you know, an explanation of, of what it is you do and, and how you go about approach, like solving this problem. Okay, so um, I'll give you the elevator pitch, as it were. Uh, I've already mentioned that, you know, rainforests have been protected for a long, long time and it's not always been as successful. We've lost, you know, some say 30%, some say 50% of, of the forest that we had in the middle of the last century. Um, and despite a lot of efforts to to to, um, to protect it, uh, when I first started looking at this in, in 2007, um, I had the real luxury of just spending a great deal of time talking to smart people in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Brazil, Peru, Honduras, uh, Papua New Guinea, Malaysia, about what worked and what didn't work. And the thing that came very clear is that um, the attempts to protect rainforests that failed or weren't sustainable, maybe worked for five or 10 years, were those that didn't actually have the buy-in and the support of, of local people. And that was the first thing that we needed to address. I then spent a lot of time saying, okay, how do you support local people? Do you um, do you go in there and you know do the standard humanitarian you know, um, overseas aid thing of building schools and clinics and providing classes in female entrepreneurship and you know all these lo- lovely things which um very much are filed a- a- away with uh, motherhood and apple pie but uh aren't always very easily sort of assessed in terms of their, their, their overall impact but certainly a lot of people said yeah that's great um other people um particularly the indigenous communities <laughs> that we started to talk to said yeah that's kind of nice but probably it's it's, it's easier if you you know just just give us money so because we had lots of different options in front of us, we thought, well, let, let's just do something very simple in the first instance, because we had started working with some anthropologists um, in Peru who had um, very long experience of working with a 
indigenous nation uh, in that part of the world called the Ashaninka, the largest indigenous nation in, in Peru, uh, that also goes uh, um, slightly into Brazil, but certainly is you know, um, a very significant group of people who have a very long history of um, keeping rainforest standing. Uh, and Dilwyn, the, Dilwyn Jenkin, the, the name of the um, anthropologist who, who's sadly no longer with us, he um, said, well, there's a group I know very well who are really in dire straits. They, they've got um, many children suffering from malaria. They've got um, real issues with malnutrition because um, they've had some sort of you know very unexpected extremes of weather, which have um, done for their crops. And the only people who are willing to give them cash to help them in these uh, circumstances at the moment are illegal loggers who will turn up every year and offer you know a fraction of what they might get for their trees to to to, to sell out. And um, having said no for as long as anyone can remember, they're getting to the point where they, they might actually have to say yes, which would be a tragedy because um, as, as, as we can get on to, uh, once you say yes once to someone who's trying to steal your word or steal your land, then often it's very difficult then to to prevent that um, that that uh, loss of control spreading. Um, so we just gave them a simple cash grant, and because we're a very small organization i think there are only two or three of us um we just gave them it as cash literally it arrived as cash and that was the luckiest accident we've ever had because it turned out that just giving people cash was the most effective way not only of um helping people out in a, a tough situation but also giving them control giving them the decisions giving them the ability to make certain you know decisions and that we really wouldn't have um, anticipated ourselves uh in the context of their, their own lives. And we carried on doing that. Um, we, we started doing it to communities uh, in Central Peru, then we did it to Northern Peru, then we did it to Papua New Guinea, then we started doing it in places uh, in um, the Central African uh, rainforest. And we sometimes gave it to communities, uh, and that worked very well, and we felt a bit more comfortable with communities. And sometimes we gave it as grants to do particular things, such as building schools and whatever. And then it really did dawn on us, and actually – the less we did, the better. The less we went along and said, "This is a you know a great idea we've heard about. Let's let's put in place um, I don't know a, a, a new freshwater system, new latrines." Um, the less we did of that, the better, because generally local people would already have thought four steps ahead of us and were already putting that in place, or figured out a workaround, or realised that that wasn't quite appropriate. So, as I said, us stepping back and just providing cash was a far more effective way of doing it. And over time, we we, we have fantastic access to, to tech, whether it be remote sensing or um, ground uh, ground proofing from our local communities. And it just turns out it works very well. We're, we're three times more effective than um, other rainforest charities in terms of um, protecting forests or indeed um, other communities in that locality. Uh, and yet it's very, very cheap. Very little money stays with cool earth. Most of it just arrives um, on the forest floor. And as I said, it's very easy to do because we don't have to build a big infrastructure of um, humanitarian, humanitarian aid. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting model, and, and a, yeah, as you explain it, it makes a, it makes complete sense. Um, but it's not something you, you always think. Like, I need to give them the solution. I need to like come to them with with this thing, like this particular project that will help them. And actually, the best thing you can do is actually just give them the financials to enable them to go and make those decisions, which they already know what they need to prioritize. 
Is there an opportunity though for you to like track how some of that money is being used, and then if there are communities that aren't so sure, you can say, well, actually, look, here's a similar community in, in a similar situation, and, and they used it in this way, and, and that had a huge impact. Or is it that that just isn't a story that comes up? No, no, you, you can definitely do that, and um, you'll um, probably understand, Craig. Whenever anyone gives a, a relatively straightforward account of something that's happened over a number of years it's probably missing out lots of bits of detail and things that didn't go quite so well. And we've made loads of mistakes and we've, uh, we have sometimes, you know, gone down the route of um, building schools and, you know, you know, digging latrines and saying, you really should do this. Um, but uh, as I said, early on, we realized that that wasn't quite as effective and the more that was planned by the people who lived there and the more of the cash that was actually held by them and spent by them, the better. Uh, in terms of tracking that cash, yeah, it's really easy to to, to track it, and we, we don't do anything, you know, um, clever in terms, clever or dodgy in terms of surveillance or you know, sort of um, overseeing exactly what's what's going on the ground. We just ask people, and uh, and you know, in general, um, uh, people are very very keen to sort of you know explain what, what their plans are and um, uh, talk through you know what, what the consequences of um, their, their decisions will be. Uh, generally, you see a large amount of it used as emergency savings um which is really sensible because for a whole bunch of reasons but not least because if you do have a medical emergency uh and you live seven hours from the hospital and the only way to get there is um buying fuel for someone who's got a boat and giving them some cash to get you there quickly having that money um put to one side to pay for that fuel etc makes a huge amount of sense plus um you know you have good times and bad times, good harvests and bad harvests. Again, that, that's the principal thing that people will, will do, first of all. Secondly, people were spending a lot of money just on making um, their, their, their homes a bit more habitable, a lot of tin roofing, um, a lot of uh, uh, investment in, in better cook stoves. Um, and then the third thing is generally investments in livelihoods, um, often tools for farming, uh, sometimes buying uh, better quality strains of uh, seed in order to resist certain diseases. Uh, sometimes um, actually just putting money together with other, other groups in the community to form really quite straightforward cooperatives. That means that, you know, for example, if you're making coffee, you need a machine that takes the, the uh, outer covering of a, of a coffee cherry off to release the um the bean that you can then dry and process and, and, and sell on. Uh, I mean, they're big things. You don't need them too many times a year. So having a cooperative that you know owns them together makes perfect sense. And we've seen that done with uh, over the years. We've seen it done with vanilla. We've seen it done with uh, sesame. We've seen it done with uh, coffee and, and maybe most importantly with cacao, with chocolate beans, um, which is a really important uh, crop, uh, particularly where we work in Peru. So those are kind of the three areas that the money uh, tends to be spent. The thing that we've uh, never really seen, and huge amounts of evidence uh, by, you know, uh, particularly research in, in Africa and South America, seems to show this with um, cash transfers, as, as we call this. The money doesn't go into vice. I mean, it doesn't go into you know, five-day drinking sessions or you know the things that you don't want to present on. And there are a whole bunch of reasons why that is, and it's the same pretty much in this country as well. It's because pe- people are sensible and need to plan. Um, we did at one stage uh, prioritise giving money to women rather than men, so the female head of the household rather than the male. And possibly that's helped at all. We, to be honest, we've not done enough tests where we didn't do that or just something very different to sort of be able to give you uh, firm insights. But certainly from our case studies, um, 
it's extraordinary how uh, quickly and sensibly that cash is deployed. But having said that, I mean, we would probably do the same if we were in the same situation in this country. And, you know, what do people do with child benefit in this country? They generally spend it on very sensible things to make, uh, you know, the, the costs to cover the costs of raising kids. And um, obviously, you've given quite a lot of insight there into, uh, I don't know if it's the right term, but kind of like the back end of the operation, like how the, the funds are being deployed, how it's being used, and you've experimented with that and, and found out kind of mostly like optimal ways of how that's being spent. In, in terms of kind of the front end of the operation, so kind of getting the donations in, is, is that the more tricky part in terms of like knowing how much money to spend on marketing and, and getting the good word out there and attracting people to the Cool Earth mission and, and getting the donations? Uh, it is. I mean, bringing the cash in is um, a genuine <laughs> struggle day in, day out. Unfortunately, I, I have a fantastic team of uh, fundraisers and communicators who, who do a terrific job of making sure the cool earth really does, you know, punch above its weight. Um, I mean, certain things help us uh, bring money in, although I, I would you know, very much um, state before every charity is finding it. Bit tough at the moment because uh, there's nothing more discretionary than giving money to charity, to be honest, and therefore it, it, it is a, it is a struggle. In order to convince people to not so much donate in you as, as, as invest in you, because obviously the best donors are the ones that support you over a, a number of years and really do you know get on board and want to learn about the successes and the failures of an organisation. In order to get those investors on board, you, you do need to have a very clear um, approach, and I hope the fact that we focus so firmly on protecting rainforests to address the climate crisis by working alongside indigenous people and maybe that working alongside bit of the sentence can be replaced by providing cash to indigenous people it is is straightforward and i hope it does make us a fairly distinct offering compared to a quite a crowded field i think being able to um have personal testimony about how it works having you know the comms collected in the communities, you know, ideally filmed in the communities by the people who live in the communities and are getting the money, having as much uh, authenticity to the, the, the updates you can get. And I, I, I'll hold up my hand saying that's a work in progress. We're, we're still trying to get um, uh, that right and, you know, very much turn up the volume on that part of our, our comms compared to the sort of the, the more uh, conventional, you know, call to action and, and calls to support. Um, and then the other thing is is finding um, third parties that either choose to say you're great and you should give them money, uh, or work with you over time and then say that, that you know you're, you're a great group to work with. So we were very lucky early on. Um, you may be familiar with the Effective Altruists, who are a US-based group who, who are now global. Had a few tough times in recent um, weeks because of uh, one of their funders going bust, but they're still probably best in class in terms of assessing charities to figure out genuinely what impact they're making, um, what, what was the impact they're making and, and how cost-effective they are compared to other approaches. Effect Routers said we were the best in class for climate um, change investment. So so that was great. And people like GiveWell, who associated with them, said nice things. We have an even more um, valuable group called um, Impact Ninjas, who are very focused on making a difference in terms of conservation that they rate us very highly. So, so they really help um, uh, uh, as well. And then we've had some fantastic um, uh, supporters in the past, or, or actually not even supporters, people who just sort of you know noted nice things. So James Lovelock, who invented the Gaia theory, um, 
and kind of you know brought the idea that uh, the earth is self-regulating. So if we do ignore the consequences of um, fossil fuel burning, then you know we're all going to live with it. The earth will sort itself out over hundreds of thousands of years, but we'll probably disappear as a species. He said very early on, ignore carbon credits. It's all nonsense. Just give you money to cool earth. When we launched, we had a couple of very nice articles written for us by um, Sir David Attenborough. And on our board of trustees, we have uh, extraordinarily um, high-profile figures such as uh, Professor uh, Johan Rockstrom, who is um, head of the Stockholm um, Institute, uh, uh, and Tony Juniper, our current chair, who has been head of WWF's campaigning, also head of um, uh, Friends of the Earth, and is currently uh, chair of Natural England. Again, very influential people who know what success looks like and decided to um, you know, champion us. Those are the things that really, really help. But I've got to say, um, when we look at last year and say, well, we made you know, 4 million, let's try and make 4.2 million. It really doesn't work like that. You've got to say, we made 4 million. We've got to make another 4 million. <laughs> so actually, at the start of our financial year, we very much focus on starting from scratch because that's what the work generally involves. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And it's, it's worth me saying from this point, like um, for anyone inspired and would like to to do their bit, like it's really easy to go to coolearth.org um, to donate. Um, my business, we do like a monthly donation, which is super easy to set up. So if anyone can give anything, then then please do. Wonderful. That's very kind. Thanks, Craig. <laughs> that's right um in terms of things you're working on so obviously you mentioned you know the funding resets every year you're back you know always looking to to try and replicate the year before um in terms of the big things you're working on next year or two like can you share any exciting i don't know if it's projects or if it's more kind of the marketing front but what are you looking forward to seeing more over the next two years from cool earth oh well we've got um some terrific projects just two that i'll I'll, um flag if i may um rainforests used to be, you know, this thing 4,000 miles away that um, we would you know, read about in books and see generally, you know, the background to some sort of David Attenborough-led documentary. Now, they're far more familiar to us, but also um, they're far more accessible in terms of um, being able to see what's going on there. And I think it all kind of started with Google Maps and we you know, started playing around with that pretty much the same week Cool Earth launched in 2007. Google Maps launched and we could actually zoom in and see exactly what was going on there. Now, the text got better and better. The resolutions got you know smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and as a result, the amount of data that you can actually access about rainforests, not just you know the canopy, whether it's there or isn't, but also the amount of biodiversity, um, the... Uh, the, the uh, height and the variance of the canopy, the actual amount of carbon that's being stored in there, all these things are relatively easy to get hold of due to the work of Landsat and Sentinel and uh, Planet Labs, etc. The great irony, though, is that it's very easy for you and I to see this data. We could spend an afternoon finding far more than we would know what to do with. The people who live in the rainforest, who can probably find the best uses for that data, don't find it easy to use so we we have a, a, a project um called um rainforest labs led by uh matt proctor who, who's um a tremendously uh able um techie who also really gets what we're um you know trying to achieve with our community partnerships he's put together this uh, group of very talented people who are basically finding ways in which we give the tech and the data to people living in rainforest villages 
Um, it involves clever bits of Wi-Fi, clever bits of satellite, a lot of um, uh, very um, uh, well-designed uh, user interfaces on, on uh, tablets that we give them. And this is actually putting into the hands of people who live in rainforest far more uh, information about um, their forest than they ever could have before. And it's really valuable. It's valuable for them seeing where, for example, there are incursions onto their land. It's very useful, for example, for them to see the consequences of wildfires which will um, occur. It's very useful for them being able to go to you know uh, local governments or, or federal governments and saying, you know, this is our land. We have tenure over this. Look, we can draw this. We have blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's also very useful if they wanted to boast about, you know, how much biodiversity they have, how much forest they protected that has protected this much carbon. They can do it. And actually putting those tools and that data in the hands of people who live there, I think, is is, is genuinely um, a, a radical change, which will lead to really exciting things and, you know, really just change the power balance. So we're really excited about that. It's it's piloting in Peru. Um, it's spreading in Peru very quickly. We're going into Papua New Guinea. And I think uh, that may well be one of the key things that Cool Earth is, is, is known for in two or three years' time. The other thing is that we're getting more and more um, uh, savvy, we think, in terms of putting cash into the hands of people who live in the rainforest. I alluded earlier to grants that we used to make to communities. We're now looking at uh, doing a um, standalone pilot in um, some communities, initially, originally in Peru, where we will basically put X dollars a day for every person who lives there, including kids, into that community and just see what happens. We won't have Cool Earth staff there. We won't have Cool Earth logos. We won't go in there and say, hey, let's do a cacao program. Let's put some sanitation. It will literally just be cash with no strings attached, no conditionality whatsoever going into a rainforest community. The purpose of the pilot, first of all, is to see if we can do that without causing any harm. If, you know, if it doesn't generate inflation, if it doesn't generate, you know, animosity or conflict with that community, that's the first stage. And if we can do it without doing a harm, then we're going to see how effective this is compared to every other, every other possible intervention to keep rainforest standing, see how it compares to those. And we have an inkling that actually this is the secret source that will unlock genuinely billions of pounds of climate funds that are meant to be poured into saving rainforests, but at the moment are being held in I know, the World Bank, regional development banks, with people saying, oh, not quite sure what to do with it. If we can get this right, and I think we will, then this is the way in which anywhere in the world can fund rainforest protection in the most effective possible way very, very quickly with full transparency and, and, and full auditability. So that's kind of the, the two big things we're going for. Uh, if you let me, I'd love to come back and tell you how it's going in a year's time because uh, this is pretty much the biggest investment call that's ever done in a, a couple of um, new initiatives, um, but I'm sure... Well, that's some very interesting stories to tell. Oh, yeah, 100%. I'd love to have you back on. It would be sounds super interesting now. So it'd be great to see any years' time where you're on. Hopefully, it's all gone gone to plan we'll see so next i wanted to chat to you just a bit bit more about kind of your you know your journey as a founder and um you know you've been running cool earth for i think it's around 17 years now it's a long time for it's any any person any business <laughs> <laughs> i mean what what keeps you like committed and motivated to the to the cause and do you see yourself doing this for as long as you possibly can uh, gosh, okay. So um, <laughs> let's do the last one first. I don't see doing it for, for, for a great deal uh, longer. Although, to be honest, it's not really my call. I, I have a very talented board of trustees who have been uh, tremendously 
patient and indulgent with me over the years. And I, I hope we've delivered what we, we promised we would do. But uh, at some stage, yeah, someone else has definitely taken on. I'll, I'll, um, uh, I'll, I certainly won't be the right and the best person to do it um, forever and a day. The other thing to say, though, is, I mean, 17 years is too long. So I um, I was in, in finance for pretty much the same amount of time. I've done other bits and bobs around the place. But uh, 17 years, if it had been the same job, I would have gone quite mad. The great thing about building an organization, um, and I think this would probably go for a business as it would for a charity or, or any other type of um, uh, institution, uh, it's very, very different from the early days to the middle years to the slightly maturing ones. So, for example, as I mentioned earlier, there were two of us for the first you know, two years, <laughs> and we did literally everything, and it was just um, spinning plates to keep the thing looking as though it was an organization, quite simply, and I, I'm sure anyone else has been involved in a startup charity will probably have some empathy for that. You, you really are paddling very fast because <laughs> though you, you're um, gliding through the water. And then we got more money and we got bigger and we got a bigger team. We started employing more people um, overseas. Uh, that was, again, really exciting, but um, was very different to those early years and required lots of different skills. Also, it was a different time. I mean, this was in you know, 2010, 2014. Uh, having a UK domicile charity, albeit with, a, with, with the US um, uh, equipment as well, but bringing in money and then kind of spending that um, in Peru with a largely European staff making those decisions wasn't regarded as particularly odd. Um, whereas now, rightly, it completely jars. And the process we're going through um, at cooler at the, uh, the current time is really saying what needs to be in the UK, what needs to be in Europe, what needs to be in North America. Because in actual fact, if we have more and more programming decisions being made in Papua Guinea, Peru, DR Congo, Gabon, wherever, that must be a good thing. If we have more of our communications being generated there as well, closer to the action, understanding the issues. It will be of a higher quality. It will be uh, more insightful. And again, that must be a good thing. If we have this big infrastructure, which includes finance and operations and HR, but most of those people are, uh, are outside the UK, why are we keeping those services uh, in the UK? So the, the the job we're going through at the moment is really saying, as an organisation, Cooler has to look far more global than probably we realized, you know, five years ago. Um, within uh, our teams, we therefore probably do need to have a bit of restructuring going on. There are some things that probably do need to be done in the UK. There are some fundraising elements. There are possibly some, you know, governance things that need to be done here. But actually challenging ourselves to make the decision about, do we really believe that? Or are we just saying that because it's handy for us is, is the big challenge. And I would hope very much that um, eventually, you know, who knows, might be months, might be years, uh, we'll get to the point where we say actually having the director in the UK really um, is not the way in which this organisation is best managed. Having someone closer to the action who can actually speak about, you know, the action, speak about, you know, exactly what we're doing with more authority would be a far more valuable thing to have. So, uh I'm, you know, in that stage now of basically, I hope, talking myself out of the job for very good reasons because it'll be done much better by someone else somewhere else. And it's, it's great you have that level of self-awareness and, and the business and, and you're willing to kind of have those tough conversations because it'd be quite easy to, to not. So I, I definitely admire that. 
So uh, last thing I just wanted to ask about was um, obviously there, there are some differences when you're um, you know, uh, building a charity versus necessarily like building a startup or like a, a for-profit business. And I just wondered, like as someone who's been through that experience, what your advice would be or like what you think are the, the things you really need to nail down and focus on in those early days so you can kind of grow the charity in the way that you want it to be grown? Um, there are differences to, to starting a business, but none that provide um, none that none that cut you any slack, as it were. I, I think you know, first and foremost, um, just because it's a charity, you should have exactly the same discipline of a business. You should very much focus on uh, all the issues that would concern a business owner in terms of you know customer quality, ensuring that you know the product is is great, not just um, you know. <laughs> the box in the first week of use, but actually you can carry on talking about the products uh, and, and convincing people who invested in it uh, that it's a good thing, uh, and also recognizing that, that there's there's no you know scope for waste just because you, um, for example, may have a great campaign that brings in a bit more. Um, you've got to figure out actually how you channel that into you know, uh, what you're doing, and the reason for that is not just because it's, it's a great discipline. The money you're getting in as a business is for a service that people will generally get in the here and now. The money you're getting as a charity is cash that people are entrusting you to do something extraordinary with over three months, a six month, or two year, which is you know a terrifying responsibility to have, but one that you do have to keep on reminding yourself on that you know, I would almost argue that uh, it's easier to live with wasting a bit of money in a business because you're trying different things. Doing that in the charity it seems almost sacrilege. So that would be the key thing uh, I, I would I would um, focus on in terms of, um, sort of the, the key issues to keep in mind. Um, in terms of um, how a, a charity may differ in other ways, um, I think you, you you always similar things to yourself as well. People will work for you because they believe in your cause, and that really can't be you know abused in any way. You've really got to recognise that if someone's taking maybe you know. 40, 50% less money for what they do and they're very skilled. You've got to make sure that not only do they have an interesting job, that you provide really great opportunities for them to grow their career and you know surprise themselves in terms of what they do. You've also um, got to recognize that they probably have more of a say in a business, say in the charities it were, than than you might normally have from the start. I don't think people just turn up and you know get paid and leave with a charity. You know, it's it's something that um, the entire team take home with them and therefore you're in the responsibility to make sure that the decisions you make the direction the charity goes in are very much reflective of you know um their opinions as well yeah no 100 i could i can definitely imagine that being the case and um i guess kind of wrapping things up now um for anyone like i said interested to learn more about cool earth um check out coolearth.org uh, there's a ton of good information on there about the work they're doing and education on the problem and, and like ways of solving it um Matthew, in terms of socials, are Cool Earth active in any social channels that people are worth following? We are. Um, all the standards, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, we're not doing TikTok, which has been uh, a concern of mine for years, but, you know, who knows? It's only, only a matter of time. Maybe that's your next role. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Influencer. Let's watch this space. Um Cool. Well, look, Matthew, it's been, it's been a real pleasure. Like I've learned loads and really enjoyed the conversation. So thanks again for coming on the show and I wish you and the team all the best. You're really kind. Really good to see you. Thanks, Craig. 
Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril al and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.